When we think of crime cartels and mafia families, the traditional depiction we gravitate towards is the one of Don Vito Colleone and his son Michael Colleone in the Godfather trilogy of movies. These tell a powerful and epic story, exploring the price of power, the cost of ruthlessness, and the impact of these things upon the soul of a man and his family. And I'm mentioning all of this because that genre is the best way to understand what it would have been like living in the 11th century. Because when you take away the rituals, the jewels, the ornate titles and everything else, that was what early medieval nobility was like. They had only just started the process of codifying laws and building an entire legal code to allow them to enforce certain behaviours upon the world. Every great European royal dynasty once started life with a brutal progenitor, a man of will who understood that it's never just business, it's always personal. They were groups who made up the rules as they wanted. They were engaged in violent struggles with their rivals. They offered people the chance to swear loyalty to them or face their consequences. They were monstrous cartels led by high-ranking nobles who were basically nothing short of a bunch of godfathers engaged in vendetta and gang warfare. Sure, they had titles like dukes and earls and even kings, but stripped bare of all their ornate grandiosity, they were just a bunch of Michael Colleons, all vying to cement their position at the expense of others. It's time to tell a story about the price paid when such men fall out. It's about a decade-long rivalry slowly burning in the background and how the ambitions of two men finally spilt over into the public arena and how the entire nation was twice brought to the verge of civil war within only a couple of years. And it's about how London was to have a front row seat for this both times, like it or not. It's a story about family and about how when it comes to power, a simple argument can drag a whole nation to the brink of ruin. Hi, my name is Saul and welcome to the Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the place from the point of view of the city itself. This part is a story. It's a story about the decisions of powerful men and how these decisions could turn London into the central location of a pageant of real politique. Welcome then to chapter 41, the opening salvo of a series of chapters I'm calling a Godfather trilogy. And this is part one of that trilogy, Two Households. Our story is set in the closing years of the 1040s. 600 years from that day, an Englishman, a resident of London, would write the following words to describe the start of a play he'd just composed. Quote, Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge 
breed forth new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, unquote. What Shakespeare was writing about was a moment where two dignified houses of nobles engaged in crude vendetta and how their social rank would drag the community into that feud, like it or not. Nothing is so apt as these words to describe the feud we're about to see over the following chapters. This is ultimately a story about two men. The first was a man of singular faith, will and determination. He was born to power, but had seen everything snatched away from him when he was young. He had grown up in exile, dependent upon the generosity and largesse of strangers. Yet these strangers were seen as the most dangerous and deadly community in Christendom. They were the brutal families of the nobility of Normandy. In Normandy, this man, Edward the Exile, as he was known at the time, had been raised a young noble. He was given a fine education, immersed in the Catholic faith, being taught to ride and being taught to hunt and being taught to fight. He grew up, not in his native England, but in this foreign land and with its foreign cultural norms and had witnessed how brutal they could be. Edward had grown up surrounded by ruthless and decisive killers. And since he had become King of England, he had some of these men around him. They were small in number, but they were his family. In this land, he was their godfather, their protector, and they were his made men. They were the men he truly trusted here as he held the title of King of England. And their mentality was simple. Power to these Normans was something absolute. You took it, you held it, and you never, ever shared it, except with those you could trust beyond all others. These lessons Edward understood and knew well. He was an English king with a Norman mindset, and he is the first of our two godfathers. The second man this tale is about is Edward's dark reflection, Godwin of Wessex. When it comes to the role of being the head of the most powerful dynasty in England, no one could even come close to him. He was the godfather's godfather, the first amongst equals, the greatest player of this ruthless game who had ever existed. As the 1040s began, he seemed richer and more powerful than the King of England, who was the personification of power itself. Godwin's story had started like Edward's had, in exile. His father, Wolfnot, had been the victim of an attack by a similar godfather-type figure, a notorious man called Edric Strayona. Edric and his brother had conspired, it seems, to frame Wolfnoth for a crime, and Wolfnoth had fled England with 20 newly made ships that had just been assembled off the coast of Kent for Edward's rather useless father, King Ethelred. Wolfnoth had convinced loyal men to him to take these ships, and since he faced death, decided to double down and had plundered and ravaged the coast of England, a very English Viking, before ambushing the pursuing fleet four times the size of his and burning it. Wolfnoth's 
was an exile, a pirate, and a criminal. But he understood how to use violence, how to navigate the waters of illegality. And his son, Godwin, had grown up seeking to restore his family fortunes. All Godwin needed was a patron, a godfather for him to become a made man for. And he found this in the figure of the young Danish prince, Canute. Godwin had joined Canute when he'd invaded England and served loyally and faithfully as a collaborator to this alien and foreign regime. He'd made his bones during the invasion and then afterwards showed he was smart and useful. Godwin was rewarded by Canute. He was given more rank and more treasure. He was made Earl of part of Wessex before going on to become Earl of all of Wessex, the capo of the Danish king. He served alongside Canute in sea battle, commanding ships, the skills his father taught him, obviously coming to good use. And finally, he'd been placed in charge of the whole country by Canute, running it for him when he was away in other places. Godwin was his conciliary in all ways, it seems. Godwin had proven he was a canny political player and had married a Danish woman, high-ranking. He, like Edward, had started out with nothing, but he had made himself into something. He had a high-born wife, he was related to Danish and European nobility, and his children had grown up in opulence and power. Godwin had also shown he was a survivor. When Canute had died, he had been powerful enough to be heavily involved in the intricate political games which played England. And during the convoluted campaign to place first Harold Harefoot and then Arthur Canute upon the throne, he was the main political player in England. And he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty either. He had even shown his personal ruthlessness by ordering the blinding and killing of Harold's half-brother. Eilfred the Exile. Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, was a true kingmaker in all ways. And throughout this period, he advanced his family name and line, increased the power of his house, and the other earls of England paled into insignificance compared to him. He was a lord of all he surveyed. Yes, there was a king in England called Edward, but Godwin of Wessex was the capo de capi, the true power in this land. And so, before we tell the story about how these two men fell out, we need to understand just how close they were to begin with. Godwin was vital to Edward. His support had been crucial in smoothing over the Witangamot. Without Godwin of Wessex's support, Edward may not have been sat upon the throne of England. It's as simple as that. But Edward gave Godwin something back in return. He reinforced the great fixer's position, and he improved it. Theirs was a mutually beneficial relationship, two sides of the single coin, the regime that controlled England. And to understand just how intertwined these two men were, King Edward was married to Godwin's daughter, Edith. They'd married in January 1045. We don't know her exact age, but she was probably in her late teens when she wed Edward was about 40 years old at this point. The union of Edward and Godwin, the households of Wessex and Godwinson, via his daughter, had cemented their alliance and was done because, to quote one contemporary source, because the king, quote, knew that with the advice and help of Godwin, he would have a firmer hold on his hereditary rights in England, unquote. 
So, Godwin basically allowed Edward be king, and Edward allowed Godwin legitimise his family. Godwin was self-made. Everything he had, he had blagged and worked hard for. But now, he was the father-in-law of a king. More than that, his grandson would be royalty. Think about the glory in that. The son of a pirate would have a grandson who would be frickin' royalty. His dynasty would be amidst the highest in Europe. Godwin's real ace in the hole was his daughter. Edith was more than just a queen at the time. She'd grown up in her father's court, having seen the intricate and complicated nature of English politics firsthand, up close and personal. She'd been raised in it. By all accounts, she was intelligent, erudite, smart as a whip, and understood the nature of PR more than any other. I mean, there's an extract from the time about Queen Edith's influence upon the king, wherein it says, quote, From the very beginning of her marriage, she dressed him in garments either embroidered by herself or of her choice, and of such a king that it could not be thought that even Solomon in all his glory was ever thus arrayed. In the ornamentation of these, no count was made of the cost of precious stones, rare gems, and shining pearls that were used. As regards mantles, tunics, boots, and shoes, the amount of gold thread which flowed in the various complicated floral designs was not weighed. The throne, adorned with coverings embroidered with gold in every part. The floors were strewn with precious carpets from Spain. Edward's staff, for everyday use when walking, was encrusted in gold and gems. His saddle and horse trappings were hung with little beasts and birds made from gold by smiths under her direction." Unquote. No, this is not just the Queen being a fashionista. Back then there was a huge symbolic cultural thing about how kings in England dressed. You were supposed to look the part. The more impressive a king looked, the more powerful he was perceived. Edith was more than just Edward's queen and PR manager. She made him look kingly. There is way more I could say about Queen Edith, and unfortunately I can't because this part's long enough and complicated enough and we need to focus on London. So I'm just going to say here and now, I honestly believe Edith was simply just much smarter than King Edward. Her intelligence was based not just around a grasp of the trappings of power, she clearly understood people, she clearly understood the real politique of England and her empathic intelligence was off the scale. Had she been a man, or had she lived in an era that treated women with any semblance of respect, Queen Edith could well have run England effectively and brilliantly for decades. But as it was, she had to focus her attention to help her older husband run England. But she was the glue to his regime. And of course, this reinforced ties with the Godwin family. 
and all she had to do was to provide Edward with a son eventually. The alliance between Edward and Godwin was not just for show. When Edward decided to remove all political power from his mother, the mercurial dowager Queen Emma, in November 1043, for example, the Earls of England supported him, and that support came from them physically being there. When the king seized his mother's lands and property, he did so alongside Godwin, the Earl of Wessex, Seward, the Earl of Northumbria, and Earl Leofric of Mercia. As Edward was increasing power and wealth at his mother's expense, so Godwin was increasing his family's holdings. His children were growing and coming into their own, and so they began to gain power in their own right. Godwin's oldest son, Sven Godwinson, was granted an earldom made up of two counties from his father's vast holdings, Somerset and Berkshire, and then the king arranged for him to also rule three counties from Mercia as well, Herefordshire, Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire. Technically, this was border territory with the fractious and dangerous Kingdom of Wales. Meanwhile, at the same time this is happening, Godwin's second son, Harold, becomes Earl of East Anglia. So it wasn't just one member of Godwin's family now holding political power in England. During the 1040s, England was also suffering from bad harvests, famine and pestilence. And as well as this, there was a series of ongoing foreign policy problems taking place over in Scandinavia. Now, for once, and regular listeners will probably be delighted, I'm not going to spend ages explaining the intricate nature of the Scandinavian feuds that were going on. But I just need to focus on two aspects of foreign policy problems coming from Scandinavia that were coming up during the reign of Godwin and Edward. First, for long, very convoluted reasons involving a deal the late King Harthur Canute had made, King Magnus of Norway said he had a claim upon the English throne and was intending to invade England to press this claim. Now this was an issue that Edward and Godwin could bond over because they both felt that Magnus could go to hell with this claim. It was to counter this claim that Edward had marshaled the gigantic fleet, the largest ever seen in English history to this point, to see off Magnus of Norway. However, Magnus's invasion never took place, mostly due to the fact that Magnus had to deal with internal matters. And simply put, towards the latter part of the 1040s, the King and Earl Godwin were witnessing an intense period of vicious battles between three powerful Scandinavian warlords taking place across the North Sea. You had Magnus of Norway, Harold of Norway, his uncle, and Sveen of Denmark. And which side did England take in this? Well, King Sveen of Denmark, the new King of Denmark, was related by marriage to Earl Godwin. And this was why Edward and Godwin had sent 50 ships of the massive English fleet over to Denmark over the next couple of years to aid him. It must be said that 1046 also signifies something else. Since Magnus's grand fleet to invade England had not invaded England, this meant that all those crews and ships who'd assembled to invade England under 
Magnus's command basically had a choice. Hang around in Scandinavia and be involved in a probably rather vicious series of civil conflicts, or maybe don't hang around and sort of travel out and go on a Viking raid. And a lot of them decided that they should go on a Viking raid or at least be available for Viking raids. Please be aware, after 1046, the number of potential Vikings has gone through the roof. But if you want an illustration of just how complicated and linked King Edward and Earl Godwin were in the lead up to their falling out and how family ties, internal English politics and English foreign policy were all smushed together, then it was because of this Danish connection. Because in the year 1045, Edward appointed the brother of the Danish king, Bjorn Estrithson, who's a nephew of Godwin, as the Earl of East Mercia. The earldom had a traditionally mixed English-Scandinavian population, and it comprised of Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Hertfordshire, and the region north of London. Now, this followed a tradition of King Canutes to place a Danish earl north of London to keep an eye on it. So London would have looked north to see the overlord there was the brother of the Danish king and a loyal member of the Godwin faction. And more than that, all evidence suggests that Earl Bjorn was designated the commander of the Leithsmen, the huge number of Scandinavian mercenaries based in London. Last episode, I explained why I believed Lambeth was the headquarters of the English fleet, both the Shipfjord and the massive mercenary fleet created by Canute, and then more than doubled inside by King Harthur Canute. Its power and presence in London cannot be underestimated. Some, like myself, postulated that it dominated the entire south of London, and above all, the land it was based on was owned by Old Godwin. It's worth saying right now that if London was committed loyalists to King Edward, then Godwin's influence on the city could not have been avoided either. Earl Bjorn, a member of the Godwin clan, ruled all the lands north of the city. Bjorn was designated commander of a large amount of Danish mercenaries who were based in South London, and that massive body of ships and men were run out of land Godwin owned giving him power over the south of the city. Like him or dislike him, London could not ignore Godwin of Wessex. Still, London was loyal to the King of England of the line of Alfred. And the King's influence upon London grew during this era. Two chapters ago, I, if you can remember, I described while listing the disasters going on in England at this time, how back in 1045, London was having a hard time of it. I said only the year before, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle had said, quote, This year there was a very great hunger all over all England, and corn so dear as no man remembered before, so that a cester of wheat rose to sixty pence, and even further, unquote. And then in 1045, I said how Elfwood, the Bishop of London, had died. So London needed a new bishop. As I said, King Edward clearly saw London as a place he wanted to focus upon. And as such, that meant his choice for the Bishop of London was already with him. Remember I said earlier that Edward was surrounded by a small cabal of guys he knew from Normandy and had taken with him? It's time to talk about the most important one of them, 
Robert Chambert, a.k.a. Robert of Jumieres. Chambert had become the abbot of the monastery of Jumieres, located in Normandy, sometime we think in the 1030s, and his claim to fame was that he ordered it rebuilt with a rather pretty dramatic new two-towered front that sounds like I'm talking about architecture for no good reason, but will become kind of important later on in the story. Anyway, it was when he was there that he came into contact with Edward when he was in exile. Robert seems to have liked Edward, and Edward seems to have respected the abbot. Robert of Jumieres is a study in contrast. I mean, he was a devout Catholic of strict orthodoxy. He was pious, diligent. He was erudite. He was learned. And he was a man who patronised the arts. But he was still a Norman, and a man who understood loyalty and power. Thus, when Elford, the Bishop of London, died, King Edward knew immediately who his successor should be. And in 1045, Robert of Jumieres was consecrated as the Bishop of London. How would London have taken this? Honestly, I think they would have been delighted. <laughs> now, I've seen some suggest that the English of London were upset that a Norman had been made their bishop. I have to say, I think such a theory is absolute rubbish. Think about it. London at the time was dealing with a massive influx of potentially very violent Scandinavians. So why would they care if a Norman was bishop? And added to that, it's a kind of place where foreign bishops who had the king's ear, well, they had a tradition of foreign bishops who had the king's ear. It's just over a century since the German Theodred had been Bishop of London and a close advisor to King Edgar. Added to that, having a Bishop of London who had the ear of the King was something London could have expected to demand of their bishops. I mean, look at some of the previous occupants. Bishop Theodred, Bishop Dunstan, Bishop Wolfston and Bishop Elphin had all had similar roles in the past. So London had a smart bishop who was orthodox, well-learned, and now the named prelate of the city, and he was close to the king. What a result! So, by 1046, you had London as a bastion of loyalty to King Edward, and his Norman spiritual advisor being the strict Catholic bishop of the city. Godwin of Wessex was the king's right-hand man, and everyone would have known he was arguably more powerful than the king, but as a team, the two men had ruled England well during this intense period of geopolitical instability across Europe and natural disaster at home. So, what went wrong? Well, if we had to start it at a moment where cracks began to appear, they began to appear over Godwin's eldest son, Sven. Sven Godwinson was a troubled man. At best, you could say he was spoilt, impulsive, and the product of having grown up in a world where no one could or would ever say no to him. A male version of Veruca Salt, with a predisposition towards violence. And a social rank that allowed him literally get away with anything unless his peers intervened. That's what you could say about him at best. At worst, Sven Godwinson is an arsehole. A prime cut, grade A, no artificial flavouring, 100% arsehole of biblical proportions. And really, he began the trouble between the House of Godwin and the House of Wessex. 
and it begins with what he did in 1046. So, Godwin of Wessex, eldest son, is the Earl of a big chunk of land on the Welsh border, and to be honest, it was expected that he was supposed to defend England from rampant and hostile Welsh kings. Only Sven didn't do that, no. Sven decided in 1046 to cross the border and join forces with one of the rampant and hostile Welsh kings. And not just any rampant and hostile Welsh king. Gruffid ap Llewellyn was the king of Gwened and Powers and was seen as hostile to the English state. If I was to talk about the godfathers of Britain at this time, uh, Gruffid ap Llewellyn would get his own section. He is a genuinely amazing figure and he's lost in the shuffle of history, I think, mostly because most of the amazing things he did were in Wales and many of the Welsh at the time thought he was a bloodthirsty tyrant. So they don't remember him as fondly as other kings, but he really was a massive power in Britain. Importantly, you have to get that here in 1046, him and his domain were in conflict with the Earl of Mercia. And do keep that in mind because this Welsh king's relationship with that family was to change a lot over the next few years and it does become important. Anyway, here and now, at the start of this, if you're in conflict with the Earl of Mercia, that meant you were in conflict with the English state. As such, the last thing the son of the most powerful embodiment of the English state should be doing is joining forces with Gruffid ap Llewellyn. But he did. And Sven Godwinson joining forces with him and going on a raid of the south of Wales, a general campaign of pillaging and plundering, would have been the thing you think would have surprised everybody the most that year. But surprisingly enough, it's what Sven did next that surprised people even more. Because you see, on his way back from that rather eyebrow-raising act of self-serving treachery, Sven, Earl Sven, quote, ordered the abbess of Leonminster to be brought to him, and he kept her as long as he pleased, unquote. That's right. He kidnapped and sexually abused the abbess Elfwina of the fricking convent of Leominster. Now, I will say, I have seen some historians describe this moment as a moment of romance, or excused it as a seduction, but I think they're doing this to mitigate the sheer horror of what he did, because let me be very clear, the words, he kept her as long as he pleased, suggest a kidnap, and anything that took place between them therefore was coerced and non-consensual. This was a horrendous move, and it was condemned, and pressure was placed upon the King and Godwin to deal with this grave transition. But Godwin seems mostly unable to have controlled his son, and it was eventually pressure placed upon the family by the church that led to Spain to release this woman. And let's just remind ourselves how awful the 11th century is again. What upset the church wasn't that Earl Sven had kidnapped a woman against her will, it was the fact she was an abbess that upset them. Eventually, however, the records do say that Sven, quote, then let her go home, unquote. But it's clear he resented the church's involvement in this, and he actually confiscated some church land in retaliation. So he compounded this utterly awful behaviour by acting even more awful. If this was anyone else, Godwin would probably have strung up by his testicles, literally. But this was Godwin's firstborn son. He couldn't do it. 
he couldn't turn on his own family. Sven was exiled, a punishment of sorts, but a reveal the chink in Godwin's armour. But whatever Edward thought of this display of double standards from Godwin, he didn't have time to contemplate it for long. 1046 saw something hit England they'd not seen in a while. Remember I said lots of men who'd assembled under King Magnus of Norway to invade England had decided after the invasion didn't happen to go into business for themselves? Well, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Lothurn and Erling came with 25 ships to Sandwich and that they took unspeakable booty in men and in gold and in silver so that no man knew how much it all was. Then they went about Thanet and would there do the like. But the landsfolk strenuously withstood them and denied them as well landing as water and thence utterly put them to flight. And they betook themselves then into Essex and there they ravaged and took men and property and whatsoever they might find. And they betook themselves then east to Baldwin's land and they sold what they had plundered." Unquote. Yep, two Viking leaders ravaged Kent and Essex and got away. This was a crisis. This was not supposed to happen. Where was the ships feared? Where was the fleets? This is probably where the king did mobilize his ships feared and, quote, went out to Sandwich with a great fleet, unquote. But while he was out there trying to defend England, suddenly more ships arrived, but not intending to raid. This group of ships, well, quote, Sven the Earl, son of Godwin the Earl, came in to Bosham with seven ships and he obtained the king's protection, unquote. All right, so suddenly Earl Swain was looking to get back in with the king, we think. But before the king had anything to do with it, he, he gave him a few days leave uh, because the king was busy. And the thing that got the king busy was, quote, word came to the king that hostile ships lay westward and were ravaging, unquote. So while the king had a fleet and he's defending the east coast, Vikings were now sailing out of the Irish Sea and attacking Godwin's lands all the way on the west coast. It had to be dealt with. So as the king remained off the coast of Kent with a large fleet, he sent west the force I mentioned last chapter, 46 ships of the ships feared under Earl Godwin of Wessex with his two sons Harold and Tostig commanding each one of the king's ships, although Harold lost his command for reasons unknown during that campaign. And in that fleet, was Bjorn Ethrison, the commander of the mercenary fleet back in London. And the ships, the whole lot of them, were on a hunter-killer mission. Find the Vikings and deal with them. But the weather turns against them and they were caught in a storm. And then the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Then when they west to Pevensey and lay there weather-bound, upon this, after two days, then came Sven the Earl thither, and spoke with his father and with Bjorn the Earl and begged of Bjorn that he would go with him to the king in Sandwich and help him to the king's friendship." Unquote. So, in the midst this coast-to-coast -coast pirate raid attacks going on, Sven turned up and convinced his father and his cousin to agree to intercede on behalf of himself with the king to get whatever was hanging over him lifted. They agreed. But then, as Sven and Bjorn were making their way back, Sven had his men kidnap Bjorn, bundle him into one of his ships, quote, then they hoisted up their sails and ran west to Exmouth and had him with them until they slew him 
and they took the body and buried it in a church. And then his friends and Lysman came from London and took him up and brought him to Winchester, to the old minster, and there he is buried with King Canute's uncle. And Sven then went east to Baldwin's land and sat down there all winter at Bruges with his full protection, unquote. Wow. So, for reasons that they'd be too long to explain, Earl Bjorn had been murdered by Earl Svein, who had then fled to Flanders. Previous to this, Godwin had seemed to be having issues controlling his family. Now, he seemed literally incapable of even correcting his son at a most basic level. Look at it this way. You have hostile forces in Scandinavia. There is a Welsh warlord with his shit together plundering the Midlands. You have the first wave of genuine Viking raids in decades. And you have earthquakes, famines and disease. And the number one cause of instability in the nation was the goddamn milk baby sociopathic sexual molesting heir of the most powerful man in the country. And this guy's killing off his own cousins. I mean, that entire killing of Bjorn may have been done at the behest of someone back in Norway or Denmark for all anybody knows. Basically, I imagine King Edward would be by now beginning to get a little tired of this. Godwin ruled vast territories via his family, but his eldest son was being a dick. Added to this, his daughter Edith was not pregnant, and not for lack of trying. She may be smart, she may be erudite, but this is the 11th century. If anybody had an infertility problem here, it was going to be the Queen. If anybody's transgressions were preventing Edward from having an heir, it was going to be the Queen. Robert of London, the Norman Bishop I picture out now, would have been whispering in the ear of the King. Can we really trust this English godfather, Your Majesty? Can we really put so much faith in Godwin of Wessex? So as we emerge into 1050, think of the situation. Godwin is still the godfather of England, but he can't control his eldest son whatsoever. And at the same time, his brilliant daughter is not giving the king a son. There is tension there, and Edward's Norman advisers would be telling him straight up, he was the king. He should be in charge. This was his kingdom. Not the Godwins. That was the setup. And now Edward was about to act. By hook or by crook, he was about to strike. In a battle of godfathers, only one man can hold power. The Normans understood this. Godwin would understand this. And above all, London was about to discover this. As we continue this story in the next chapter of the story of London, due out within the next 24 hours. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you next chapter, chapter 43, An Ambush in Southwark. Bye.